Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Hear the word of our Lord. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Deacons will get that to you. Let's pray and ask the Jesus who was there that morning with Mary, who's here this morning. Let's ask him to speak to us. Our Father, it was with great joy that we saw Jim and Dorothy Bennington walk in that door this morning. Father, week after week after week, we've prayed for them in this place. We thank you that you heard our prayers. We pray that you would keep your hand upon them and completely heal, bring healing to both of them. We thank you for them, and our Father, we thank you for the powerful way that you have blessed us through them. Our Father, we pray this morning for Tom Morgan. We thank you that he's finally in rehab. We thank you for how you are building his strength. We pray that, Father, you would completely free him from this cancer. We ask that he soon might walk through that door. We thank you, Father, for how you've blessed Janet Sartell.
And we pray that you would continue to bring healing to her body. Strengthen her for this last series of treatments. Our Father, we open your word. We know that John Sartell cannot teach so that it will make any difference in our lives. He can't teach so that we'll be changed from the inside out. But you're able to speak that way by the power of your spirit who's here in this room. And we pray that we would hear him more clearly than ever this morning. Maybe for the first time. We pray that, Father, whether it's for the first time or whether it's for the one thousandth time, we pray that you would change us from the inside out this morning. Continue that transformation, Father, that began when we first met him. We pray for his glory. Amen. Has your love for Christ become faith in Christ? Most of us are here this morning because we have an affinity for Jesus. If I had asked you walking in the door this morning, do you love Jesus? Most of you would not have hesitated. You would have said, John, you know that I love him. But since most of us are lovers of Christ and have an affinity for him, I want to ask us another question this morning. What do you expect of Jesus in your life? What do you expect of him? This morning, what are your expectations of the person you say that you love. Why do I ask this question? Mary Magdalene loved Jesus, but she had not expected him to die an ignoble death, even though he said and had told her plainly that he would. She loved him, but she had not expected a resurrection. When we walk in here on Sunday morning to meet him, what do we expect of Jesus? What do you expect of him this morning? On the first Lord's Day morning, Mary Magdala had not expected to see him alive. What are your expectations this morning? That's the question before the house. Has your love for Jesus, has your affinity for Jesus become faith in him, faith in his word? And that's where I want to start this morning. A love that has become faith. Look at the first verse of chapter 20. 
Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Look at verse 13. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. In every gospel, in every gospel, Mary Magdalene was at the tomb at dawn. She actually got there before it was light. Look at those words, while it was still dark. Why was she there? The other gospels record that Mary and several other women had prepared spices with which to anoint his corpse. (laughs) It's funny. Think about that for a minute. Here they came with their spices. Here Mary Galad came with the spices. And there stands a risen Jesus saying, what are you doing with those spices? <laughs> what? what are you doing with them? Why was she there to anoint a corpse? Jesus had been buried by Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus. The women had not been a part of that burial process. They had watched it from afar. The Jewish Sabbath began on Friday evening. So Joseph and Nicodemus had hastened to bury his body before that great holy day of Passover, the holiest Sabbath of the year. The women then planned after Saturday to go to the tomb early on the first day of the week to anoint his body in a traditional way. That's why Mary was there. She was not there in faith that he would come from the grave. He had said that he would, but at this point she's not a believer. Understand this. Jesus has said, I will come. From the tomb. He had said it over and over and over again. She didn't believe that. That was not her faith. She was there simply because she loved him. Look at it. Look at verse 2. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved and said, Now, This is after she's been to the empty tomb. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. It's not even in her frame of reference that he had walked out of the tomb. Look at verse 13. They ask her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. Look at verse 14. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Look at it. Bear with me. You're saying, John, we get the point. No, look at it. To Peter and John, she said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. To the angel standing there, to the angel, she said, they've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they've put him. To Jesus 
Speaking actually to Jesus, he said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. The lady was not there in faith. She had no idea. She had no hope that he would walk out of that tomb. He was dead. Most of us have experienced this. Out of love for someone, a husband, a wife, a child, a parent, a longtime friend, a soulmate dies, and you feel as if someone has ripped your heart out. You're overwhelmed with grief. There's such grief because you have loved so deeply and cared so deeply. That's why Mary was there. Not in faith. She went to the grave much like we go to a funeral and wipe away the tears. We need to stop and think about it. Her life would have been a lot different that morning if she had been there in love and faith. You know, think about it. She could have come without the spices. She could have come running to that tomb laughing. And somebody said, what are you doing? I've come to see him rise. He said he would. I couldn't wait till this morning. But instead, grief, confusion, and perplexity were ruling her life because faith was absent. Not faith in general. She still had faith in God, but faith in particular. Jesus had told her. He had told the disciples in very uncertain terms that he would rise. Even his enemies knew it. Look on your scripture sheet at Matthew 27, 62. The next day, the one after the preparation day, the chief priests and Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that the deceiver said, after three days, I'll rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. His enemies, even his enemies knew what he had said. On this issue, Mary was no different than Pilate. Neither one of them believed that he would come from the grave. And folks, listen to me. This is the point. She was worse off for it. Loving Jesus is salvation. Loving him brought her to the tomb. But love without faith in his specific word will rob us of blessings and power that we need in this fallen world. Mary's lack of faith denied her the hope she should have had that morning. Mary's lack of faith denied her the joy that she had known that day. It was the greatest morning in the history of the world, and she was at the epicenter of it all. And she could only see disaster. That's all. Disaster. Folks, like Mary, we can love Jesus, and we can miss the power of the resurrection. 
We can love Jesus and stand beside a loved one's tomb and see only disaster. I've seen people, people I've known to be Christians, lovers of Christ. And they have been miserably and morbidly overwhelmed by grief because they had, they didn't have the hope that the resurrection brings. What a difference faith makes. We should go to every funeral overwhelmed with the truth of the resurrection. We should say out loud when we leave that funeral, death, listen to me. You have not had the final word. Jesus will have the final word. And this loved one whom I love so much, I will see that person again. Do you hear me, death? We should look at the licentious person that's infamous in the county, infamous for his degradation, infamous for his sin. And we should, we should pray for that individual and look forward to a dynamic, powerful gospel changing his life because we're praying. We should come in here every Sunday morning looking for a transcendent God, looking for the supernatural. Do you understand that? We're transformed people. We're people that have been born again, not by obedience to a moral code, but by a living Savior, by a living Holy Spirit that has invaded our lives and changed us. That's a supernatural thing. Many of us in our Christian lives stand exactly where Mary was that morning. We have a love for Jesus. We might even have a a general kind of faith. But we're robbed, we're robbed of a different kind of life because we lack specific faith in his specific words. When I was writing this message, I remembered a story told about Dr. Rollo May, who was with the pop culture, he was, he was the pop psychologist. Everyone here, everyone knew. If I'd have mentioned his name in the 1960s and 70s in a congregation, half the people would have known of whom I was speaking. Uh, he was kind of just a, a, a pop psychologist for a pop culture. He was a minister, been to seminary. In his psychology, he combined a a humanistic view of man with a spiritual view of man. But he wasn't a believer in the sense you are a believer. He didn't believe uh, in the resurrection. Didn't believe in the deity of Christ, but he, he had an affinity for Jesus. And once while he was traveling in Greece, he came across an Orthodox church on Mount Athos. It was Easter, and the church was having a resurrection vigil, and Rollo May joined them. Now, here's a man that didn't believe in a resurrection, and he's 
would be like sitting here on Sunday morning, this morning, Easter morning. And as the sun peeked over the horizon, that old Orthodox priest stood and shouted to the congregation, The Lord has risen! And the congregation in mass stood and cried, The Lord has risen indeed, will Rollo May. Got carried away like people get carried away when they go to Neyland Stadium and they hear Rocky Top coming down, you know, the band down the field. And even the opposing team fans are seen standing up, singing. That's what happened to Roland May. He got carried away. And he said, he's risen indeed. And then he caught himself. And he said, just at that moment, I thought, what if he had risen? What, what would it mean to my life? to my world. Wow. I wish I'd been there. I would have said, Rolo, that faith will change everything about your life, the way you talk, the way you think, everything. So we see here a love for Christ that becomes faith. Secondly, I want you to see a meeting that reveals grace. Look at verse 15. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Folks, no one saw the resurrected Jesus No human being saw the resurrected Jesus before Mary of Magdala. In his providence, in his eternal plan, God ordained that she would be the first to see the risen Christ. Why? Why Mary of Magdala? Do you know who this lady was? Look on your scripture sheet, Luke 8, verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Mary had been a demonic. This was so much like Jesus. The rabbi who ate with tax collectors and prostitutes. The rabbi who called a tax collector, to be even in his inner circle of disciples. This rabbi who who touched lepers and who dared to go into Gentile homes. Mary had been living in the resort town of Magdala when she met Jesus. That's where the Romans went to play. That's where the Romans went to party. She had been a demonic. Think about that. Inhabited by demons. And those demons had been conquered by Jesus. Have you ever been sitting here on Sunday morning and seen somebody walk through the door and said, what in the world is he doing here? What's she doing here? You expect the walls of the church to shake? Many of the church, that's, that's, that's 
what people thought. That's even what his inner circle thought. Can you imagine Peter and John? When they hear or they see that Jesus has called the tax collector Matthew to join them, you know that they had to say, Jesus, what are you doing? Guy's a thief. This appearance to Mary was so typical. His first resurrection appearance was not to Peter, not to James, not to John, not to the twelve, not to his family, not to Mary, his mother, and his brothers and sisters, but to Mary of Magdala. We read about Mary at the beginning of chapter 8, that passage that we read just a moment ago, that he had delivered her from satanic power. But how does Luke close chapter 7? Come just the verses before that. The verses just before that. What's the story? This prostitute comes to Jesus in a house, overwhelmed by his care. He'd obviously had mercy on her. And she wept at his feet and washed his feet with her tears. That's the picture. That came just before, in chapter 8, he speaks of these women in Mary Magdala, the demonic. I think those two were one and the same. Luke told her story in Luke 7, but then names her as being one of the women who followed Jesus in Luke 8. Well, you say, why didn't he identify her in Luke chapter 7? Do you know that the gospel writers... Never name a prostitute. They just say prostitute. The tax collectors they name. Zacchaeus. Matthew. The prostitutes they don't name. He only mentions her as being a demonic. In Luke chapter 8 is after she's followed him. Mary Magdala, a woman from the wrong side of the tracks, a reputation of being a loose woman, a demonic. She had a dark past. Could Mary of Magdala get in our Wednesday evening Bible studies? Would we feel comfortable? Could she be a member of your, ladies, could she be a member of your sewing circle or garden club? She's the person that Jesus chose from eternity to appear first. I love the subtle, detailed messages that fit into the whole story. Jesus was making a statement with his first resurrection appearance. It was the same message he had cried over and over again through his ministry. I came for sinners. The church is for outcasts. The cross is for outcasts. Now, when we hear that, what do we do? I used to sit where you sit, and when I heard that, I'd start looking around. Who are the sinners? 
Do we have Mary Magdalene here? If we do that, we have missed Jesus' message. See, the message of Jesus is we're all outcasts. Why didn't the Pharisees get it? The Pharisees were sitting there looking around for the outcasts. And Jesus says, you're worse than outcasts. The prostitutes and and thieves are going into the kingdom of heaven before you because at least they know they're outcasts. The message is not that there's some really, really bad people out there and the gospel is for them and we may need to make sure there's room in the church. No! The message is that we're the really, really, really bad people. That's why I say to you, and I'm going to keep saying to you all through my ministry, as long as the Lord gives me grace, if you knew my heart, you would not want me as your pastor. And if I knew your hearts from this very week, I would say, what in the Sam Hill are you doing here? We're outcasts. We say, I'm with Mary. I'm with Mary. A love that becomes faith, a meeting that reveals grace, and finally, a resurrection that demands surrender. Now hang on. This is the best part. Look at verse 17. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Now like many of you, I grew up on the old King James Version. The old King James that I heard when I was a child, said, Touch me not, for I've not yet ascended to my Father. That was an awful translation. I wish it had never been translated that way because I used to think, Wow, there's something very mysterious. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. I haven't yet ascended to the Father. The Greek word for touch there doesn't mean to touch. It means to hold to cling to tightly. It means to grasp. What was Mary's reaction? She fell at his feet. She was holding on to his legs with all her might, or she just leaped at him and was holding on to him. (laughs) And Jesus was laughing. Hey, Mary, don't hold on so tightly. I'm not leaving yet to go to the Father. I'm not leaving to go home immediately. I'm here with you. He says, you can let me go. It's not time for me to leave yet. Mary did not want to let go. She had lost him once. She didn't want to lose him again. Now listen to me. His resurrection was not an end in itself. It was a part of a plan that had been unfolding for thousands of years and a plan that would continue to unfold for centuries and centuries and centuries. Think about it. He was going to hang around for over a month. But then he was going home for a while. He was returning to glory. His church would grow in this plan to the ends of the earth. His church would be filled with people from every nation and language and race and culture. His his church would transform civilizations. You see, Mary in the end had to surrender her agenda to his. You can let go. I'm going to be here for a little while longer, Mary. 
but I am leaving. I am going to the Father. She never wanted to let him out of her sight. But his agenda was not hers. It had not been her agenda for him to die. It had not been her agenda for him to come forth from the tomb. And that's what we must remember. Because I promise you that Jesus has come not to fit into our agendas, but to transform our agendas. He came to transform the way Mary thought, the way she looked at everything around her, the way she looked at God, the way she looked at sin. Folks, we look at the resurrection. And we must know walking out of here this morning that that's the largest event in our lives. The resurrection demands, and that's our point, the resurrection demands that we surrender our agenda because it's not our agenda that rules, that dominates. You see, we domesticate the Son of God. We tame the resurrection. Several years ago, I knew a young lady who came to our college and career in East Memphis. She had met a man who was just a little older, but settled into career and business. He traveled. I knew him. He traveled all over the world. He was one of those figures that seemed just larger than life. I fully expected this is really a dynamic lady. I really expected that they would marry. A few months later, I ran into her. was having a conversation about what's happened in her life, and I asked her about this man. She said that she had broken off their relationship. He had wanted to marry her. I knew that. And she had broken off their relation. And I asked her why. She gave an answer that I haven't heard too many times in my life. She said he was too, his life was just too large for me. She said if I would married him, John, my life would have been devoured by his life. I understood. That's what happened to Mary that weekend. You cannot meet the Jesus Christ of the resurrection. You can't meet Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and remain the same. And keep your agenda the same. This is what the risen Jesus does to our lives. It must be his agenda, not ours. It must be his plans, not ours. I'm convinced that the reason so many people don't believe in the resurrection is not because of a lack of evidence. Sometimes I meet people that have been coming to church and you see the beginning of faith. You see the beginning of sight. 
And then it's like they leave. They can't, they, they run. And I talk to them. And Jesus has gotten too close. And they'll tell me. I want to believe. But I'm not ready to give up my life. I'm not ready to give up these things. Many Christians, many of us here at Christ's Press, have so tamed the resurrection, have so tamed Jesus, that we have fit him into our agenda. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus this morning, because it would make him too huge for your life, good for you. At least you've not tried to turn him into some kind of good genie or some kind of milk toast savior. Last year, I preached at St. Andrew's Chapel in Lake Mary, Florida. It's St. Andrew's Chapel. I've never asked R.C. why they call it that because it doesn't look like a chapel. It looks like a massive cathedral. It's huge. If you're ever in Orlando, it will be worth a day of your time. Don't take a morning. Take a whole day and go to St. Andrew's Chapel in Lake Mary. Just take a tour of it. It's magnificent. The narthex is larger, much larger than this room. In the narthex of St. Andrew's Chapel are six huge, massive, not little paintings, but massive paintings. Massive. Six. They're paintings by a, a, a French artist. And they, these paintings depict different aspects or different scenes in the life of Jesus. It's a kind of painting you can stand in front of for an hour, just one painting. And look at it and go back an hour later and you'll see things you didn't see before. They were owned by the Wacker family of Chicago. They donated them to San Andrews. San Andrews is the permanent home of these paintings. But the paintings are so huge, so massive, so expansive in their subject that you can't fit them into a room. You have to build a room around them. You have to build a building around them. That's what St. Andrews has done. That's the way it is with the cross. That's the way it is with the empty tomb. That's the way it is with Jesus. We can't fit him into our lives as they are. Our lives have got to be rebuilt, reborn to fit around him. That's what's happening now in your life. That's what's happening in my life. It's been happening in my life for 60 years. Transformation. That's what he does. Is that what's happening in your life? Or have you so tamed Jesus, or have you so tamed the resurrection to fit your way of life, to fit your words, to fit your prejudices, to fit your way of thinking, to fit your way of living? If that's what's happened, I feel for you. You hadn't really dealt with who Jesus is. And you really hadn't dealt with an empty tomb. Our hymn is most appropriate. 
crown him with many crowns.